For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Jeff. Morning, everybody. Morning, Frank. Great to see you all here. Um, my name is Frank. If you don't know, I'm also one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be here. Uh, one, one thing I want to mention before we get started in Galatians chapter 5, you can head there in your Bibles if you would. Um, we uh, had been experiencing for a while uh, some trouble with, with you guys because um, we are growing, as Tyler said, and it's really all your fault because you keep inviting people, which we really appreciate. That's a really good thing. Uh, but we started running into a little bit of trouble because you were inviting so many people that it was getting harder and harder to find seats for all of you. So not last week, but actually a week before last week, uh, we put some guys on the job, and they figured out how to fit 71 more chairs into this auditorium in a comfortable way. Um, we did not go from first class to coach. We sort of went from first class to business class, but it's still comfortable out there. But the point I want to raise to you is that there are now more chairs in here, and so there's room for you to invite more friends. So go out there and keep inviting people. We have room for you. Uh, also, we have our baptismal set up this morning. Very excited. This is not for horses. This is for baptisms. And uh, we are excited. We're going to be baptizing three people this morning. So that's going to come after communion. So we would encourage you to stick around and celebrate. Well, yes, get in the mood to clap because it is a celebration. We are excited about that. We're in week nine of our walk through the book of Galatians, which we're calling Fighting for Grace because that's what Paul was doing when he wrote this uh, letter, and that's what we should also do. Uh, Scott McKnight, who has written a pretty good commentary uh, on the book of Galatians that I've been using quite a bit, one of the commentaries, he writes this, the issue from cover to cover in Galatians is twofold. Who are the true people of God, Israel or the church, and how should they govern their lives, by obeying Moses or by following the Spirit? And today we start the third major section of the book. There's three major sections, and the third major section is chapters 5 and 6. This is what we would call the application. The first four chapters of, of Galatians, really Paul was uh, doing some history, and he was laying down doctrine and teaching, and now he transitions into application. Essentially what Paul says at the beginning of 5, if you see the transition, it's kind of like, now in light of everything I've written and, and said so far, Here's how you're supposed to live, how you, how you should apply everything that we're talking about. And today we're going to run through the first 15 verses of Galatians chapter 5. Jeff read the first six, which actually constitutes the first major section of this passage. There are three major sections of this passage, and that's how we'll study it. The first six verses that we look at could be titled, Freedom From. If you've studied ahead on this 
passage today, these 15 verses, by the way, if you don't have a study guide, you ought to grab one of those. It's a really helpful tool. And if you have those study guides, you've probably studied ahead. If you studied ahead on these 15 verses, you know there's one major theme, one major word, one major concept that dominates these 15 verses, and it is freedom. And so those first six verses are all about freedom from what? The gospel of Christ has freed us from something Paul is going to talk about that, and the two major words in that first six verses uh, are, are yoke, which we'll talk about, not like an egg yolk, but another kind of yoke, and circumcision. And then the second major portion is the second six verses, which would be verses 7 through 12. In that section, Paul can't help himself. He must go back to railing against the Judaizers and, and railing against the false teaching, and so we would call that falsehood. So we have freedom from falsehood and then the last three verses are the last major is the last major section and that would be freedom for if we've been freed from something we must have been freed for something as well and so that's how we'll kind of run through it let me pray and then we will get to work we will dig in holy god we are thankful for your love and your grace and your mercy and what a privilege it is to be able to study your word and God, what, a, what an awesome responsibility and privilege it is to teach and preach your word as well. But God, in doing that, my prayer is, is that you would be heard, not me, and that you would use me only to the extent that I would be the vessel by which you would be heard. So God, move me out of the way so that you might be heard this morning. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears to everything that you have for us this morning, God. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen. So the first six verses, freedom from what? Paul says, in this freedom that we now have, we are free from the yoke or the confines of the Mosaic law. That's what he's talking about. And then he really goes into using circumcision once again as an example of the problem with the entire Mosaic law. So you look at verse 1, and verse 1 is one of the most exciting verses in all of the Bible. People know it, people quote it all the time, and for years I have been troubled by the wording of this verse. It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. I, 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 it just kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing going on there, and, and I've never really fully appreciated or understand, uh, understood it. I, I think I'm going to help clarify that, but it says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm there and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It can be a, a bit confusing, but Edgar Andrews, who also wrote a commentary on Galatians that I've been using, he reworks the Greek a little bit and, and, and does it this way. And this really helped me when I saw it. He words it this way. Stand firm, therefore, in the life of liberty for which Christ has come to set you free. Stand firm in this life of liberty that Christ has given you because he came in order to set you free for that liberty. Don't enslave yourself again to this yoke. And I'll tell you, that word stand firm, that we translate stand firm in the Greek, is a very strong word in the Greek. In, in the English, it's very difficult for us to, to really get the full weight and force of that. But it's a military term that literally means hold your ground at any expense, even if the expense is losing your life. So when he says stand firm, he means do not give up your position even, it, even if it means that you have to lose your life to do it. And so now we look at this word freedom. Y you mentioned the word freedom, 
And it can mean so many different things to so many different people, especially if, like me, you were alive in the 60s. That adds a whole other layer to this word freedom. So we have to look exactly at what Paul is saying when he uses this word freedom. Look at the context to understand that he's talking specifically about freedom from something. He's saying, listen, you in Christ, you have freedom now from the yoke. And this yo- the, the word yoke becomes the key here. It's actually a double entendre. It's the first of two double entendres that Paul uses in this passage. A double entendre means that there is a purposeful double meaning. He's using this word because it has two meanings, and you're supposed to apply two meanings. The first meaning of yoke here is, is, is uh, as it applies to oxen. Okay? Now, oxen is the plural of ox, and if you're a Brian Regan fan, you're going to get lost for a couple minutes thinking about that, but some of you understand. Yeah, go on YouTube and just, you know, okay, search Brian Regan. Anyway, he's a comedian, but it, it has to do with binding two oxen together with an apron or, or a hitch that they would call a yoke, and, and, and it would bind the oxen together specifically for the purpose of work and it was very hard, it, 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 it restricted your movement, it restricted your freedom, literally it enslaved you to drudgery. That's what, when, when you would talk about a yoke in this context, you would think enslavement to drudgery. Uh, being bound by a yoke always meant work and it always meant that you were attached to a chore. But like I said, it's a double entendre. There was another yoke that Paul was referencing here and that would be the rabbi's yoke. See, all these rabbis, all these Jewish teachers back then had what was called a yoke. The yoke of the rabbi was their interpretation of the Torah, their interpretation of the Mosaic law. And and I want to give you a little background on this. If you were a young Jewish boy, it was assumed from the very beginning of your life that your goal would eventually be to go through all of the Uh, the Hebrew schooling, and that you would be smart enough at every point of evaluation during your childhood that you would get to advance to the next point of education and you would keep on advancing and and every time at, at age six, at age 10, and at age 13, and then again at a later age, they would actually weed out those who weren't making the cut. And they would cut them out and only a few would continue to go on. And if you were one of those those uh, uh, Hebrew boys that was smart enough and worked hard enough at the Hebrew law that you went all the way to adulthood and were never cut out of this, you would then possibly be selected to become part of a rabbi's core group, a small group of 20 or 30 guys who would follow around that rabbi, and it was very prestigious to get selected for that. If you, if you got cut out of the Hebrew educational system at any point, you were relegated to having to go back to your family and learn the family business. And, and, and literally, in their pecking order, that was kind of considered second class. You were really cool if you could make it into a rabbi's core group and learn their yoke. But here's the problem. With that prestige came some very difficult challenges. You had to learn that rabbi's yoke, his interpretation of the law. You had to be able to teach it, and you had to live by it perfectly. It was very challenging. In fact, some people would say it was a form of bondage. It was like being yoked with an ox, okay? Here's what um, uh, Edgar Andrews, who also wrote a commentary on Galatians, says about it. He writes, the bearer of the yoke of teaching, like the ox's yoke, was enslaved by the yoke. 
But in the case of the rabbi's yoke, the bearer was also condemned to endless striving in his futile search for righteousness. Let me, let me just repeat those words. How many of you, this is your goal in life, to be condemned to endless striving in, futile, in the futile search for righteousness? That kind of sounds yucky, doesn't it? Well, that's what Paul is saying you have been freed from by the grace of Christ. Now, here's what's really interesting about all of this. Jesus was a rabbi, right? That me- that's not a trick question, by the way. You can participate <laughs> if you want. Uh, Jesus was a rabbi, right? Okay, so Jesus also had a yoke. Do you know what his yoke was? Believe. Believe. It's the Greek word pistos. It's believe. It's also translated as faith or trust. But that was his yoke. Just believe. He didn't have a list of 611 rules, which is what the Torah was. He didn't have a a, a list of all of these interpretations. He had one word. He just said believe. That's my yoke. I like to call his yoke the anti-yoke. His was the true yoke. And his yoke was easy and less burdensome. This is why in Matthew, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary. What's another word for weary? Tired. Are you tired of trying to live by all the rules and lists and all the legalistic things that you have to do? Come to me, all of you who are tired and heavy burdened. If you're weighed down by all of this, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Why? Because my yoke is easy. That's what he says. My yoke is easy. Believe. Now, 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 really important to understand. It's not that Jesus' standards were low. Wow, he had, he had, a, he had really low standards if he wasn't going to make anybody work. It's not that his standards were low. It's just that Jesus had a better way. Grace, love, mercy, and faith. Grace, love, mercy. That's a better way than having to keep 611 laws, is it not? So that's what Paul is saying here. You've been freed from this. And then Paul really jumps on circumcision in the next five verses. And the Greek word and the Hebrew word that we translate as circumcision is literally cutting around. Cutting around. And this is important for us to understand because Paul's going to do some wordplay throughout the rest of this passage. So he says, what, what happens if you, if you submit yourself again to circumcision? And by that he means the Mosaic Law, but he's specifically drilling down on circumcision. What happens? And he says, three bad things happen if you do this, if you go back to circumcision. In verse 2 he says, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What does that mean that Christ will be of no advantage to you? Well, what's better, unmerited favor or having to keep track of keeping 611 laws and rules? Which would be better to do? And what he's saying is that Jesus really can't help you if you've decided to save yourself by keeping all of these rules. He's of no advantage to you in doing that. The only way that Jesus is of advantage to you is if you believe and allow the Holy Spirit to live in your life and then live in the Spirit through his love. So Christ is of no advantage to you doing the law. And then verse 3, the second problem if you submit to circumcision, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if you go and get circumcised like the Judaizers are asking you to do, not only do you have to do that, which I would suggest is bad enough already, but not only do you have to do that, but you have to keep all the other laws as well. It's not just that one. You have to keep them all. So seriously, the question becomes, grace or 611 laws? 
Which would you rather do? I would suggest the answer would be grace. And then verse 4 is the third bad thing. You are severed from Christ. Literally, if you go back to circumcision, the, any effect that Christ could have in your life has been nullified. It's been invalidated. He is of no value to you. If you try to accept or work any system of salvation other than Jesus, he will be cut off from you. He will be severed from you. There's no point for him to hang around. Now, a little reminder here. Paul is not anti-circumcision. We have to understand this. Paul is not against circumcision per se. Paul was a Jew, and he appreciated the tradition and history of the Jews, and, and he wanted to honor and preserve that. What he was against was the reason to get circumcised. He was anti the reason to get circumcised. That's what he was upset about. And the reason to get circumcised for these Gentile Galatians was because the Judaizers were forcing it on them and saying, it's a part of your salvation. It's Jesus plus circumcision. He's saying, that's what I'm against. I'm, you want to get circumcised? Go right ahead. Just do it for the right reasons, which wouldn't be why, uh, what the Judaizers are doing. And then he concludes this section in verse 6. He says, for in, Christ Jesus, uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith, belief, trust is the only thing that counts in the kingdom of God. But Paul also says, faith working through love, that faith is not a hidden attribute. This is really important to understand because right now you and I live in a culture where we're being told your faith is a personal thing and you should keep it private. Paul says, no, 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 no. Your faith is not a hidden attribute. In fact, people should not be able to help but see your faith because it's going to work itself out in love and service to others. People are going to see it. They won't be able to help. They're going to see you doing it. You're going to let your light shine before men. And people are going to come and see you, as, as, as uh, Jesus said in Matthew, and they're going to come and they're going to say, well, why are you doing this? And then you get to say, well, it's because I'm a really good person and I'm trying to keep the law. No, you get to say it's because of Jesus in my life. That's why. So love, this faith, is not a hidden attribute. It's expressed through love and service. And that becomes a great preview to verses 13 through 15. But first, the Holy Spirit got a hold of Paul, and he said, you got to deal once again with all these falsehoods. So let's look at verses 7 through 12. Let me read those for you. So Paul gets a little negative again in here. He writes, you were running well. I like this uh, running metaphor because I'm a runner, so I like this. I understand this part. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. What the Judaizers are trying to persuade you of is not of God. That's what he's saying there. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. That's a huge issue, and we're going to dive into that. And then verse 12, the one that many people like to run to, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Pretty strong language from Paul. So here's this word hindered. Who has hindered you? Literally, who has set obstacles in your way as you're trying to run this race for Jesus? Literally, here's what the Greek word, who has cut in on you? So you begin to see this word play taking form. Paul says, don't submit to cutting around. 
And now he says, who has cut in on you? Okay, and we're going to get to something else with the cutting in just a, a minute. Hang in there, okay? But you can see that wordplay. By the way, I am a runner. I like to run. Yeah, yes, I like to run. I know that's hard. To, I like to run marathons, okay? Well, what I don't like is when somebody cuts in on me, and I try not to cut in on other people. The reason this is an issue for me is because I'm not particularly fast, so I'm never in the lead, and I never have to worry about being alone. I'm always with a lot of other guys around me in the pack, okay? And so it's, there's always jostling and moving around and all that stuff. And I don't like it when people cut in on me because it hinders me. It puts unnecessary obstacles in my way, sometimes a dangerous obstacle, because if, if you get cut off, you can, you can be tripped and fall, and, and at my age, that can be a very dangerous thing. It's a long way down to the asphalt. And, and then here's the other problem, is whenever you get cut off, it, it makes unnecessary and extra work for you, because now you've got to figure that out, and, you, and you, it, it's just hard. So I don't like it when people cut in on me. It hinders me. And Paul is saying, well, who did this to you? Who cut in on you while you were running this race? It's the same people as in, in chapter 3 who bewitched them. And remember that word translated bewitched is literally, we have clouded your vision so you can't see clearly, you can't see the truth. So Paul's saying, not only have the Judaizers clouded your vision so you can't see the truth, but now they're also cutting in on you so you can't even run the race. Hebrews 12 says this. Let us lay aside every obstacle that hinders us. And, and, and the obstacle that the author of Hebrews is talking about is either sin, that can be an obstacle in running the race, or it can be a legalistic mandate, either one. Let us lay aside every obstacle that hinders us, sin or legalistic mandate, so that we may run the race with endurance. This is about Paul saying, you're going to be running a race and we want you to do it unhindered. And so once again, Paul is compelled by the Holy Spirit to, talk, to speak against falsehoods. And then we talked about how they were being persuaded. He talks about, Paul talks about this in verse 8. Those that are trying to persuade them are the Judaizers. They're desperately trying to persuade them with falsehoods and with little tricks, which we'll talk about in a minute. And Paul's saying this is not from God. But then in the middle of this, he drops in this little sentence of encouragement for the Galatians. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And some people feel like, you know, the flow of what Paul's saying, that's odd that he would drop that little bit of encouragement in there. And I would say, no, it's not so far-fetched. Paul is still a pastor. He wants to encourage them and affirm them. After all, he's been pounding them. He's been, Why are you listening to these guys? Why are you listening? Come on, you've got to stop listening to these guys. He's been pounding them. They could use a little affirmation and encouragement at this point, don't you think? Now, many of you have been hearing the stories. My wife is a, a volleyball coach, and as I've watched her over the years, uh, I've, I've found out that she's really good at what some people call the sandwich method. She's really good at it. So she'll have a player who's uh, really not doing well in one particular area, and it's becoming a problem. She's hurting herself, and she's hurting the rest of the team. And so what Jackie will do, she won't just go over there and yell at her about how awful she is and then walk away. She's decided that doesn't really work that well. Instead, what she'll do is she'll pull the girl aside so it's just them, and then she'll say, listen, you know what? You do this really well. You're really good at this. You're good at this. These are all these things that you're doing really well, but we're really struggling with you in this area. 
And, and you, got to, you, you, you know that you're struggling with this area too, right? It's been hard, and, and we've we got to work on this, and we've got to fix this, and we've got to do all the things that you need to do. You need to pay attention to this the way you pay attention to these things that you do really well. And then she says, and I know you can do it. I have confidence that you can do it because you're really good at these things. And if you just apply yourself to this the way you apply yourself to these things, it's going to go well. And so she's able to rebuke her players but also encourage them and build them up at the same time. And that works really well. That's what Paul is doing. But then right after the encouragement, Paul lays it down. He says, those troubling you will bear the penalty. They will bear the judgment. You need to understand, this is, this is not like a, a slap on the wrist or a stern talking to. This is condemnation language. This is uh, very difficult and tough language. He's saying uh, these guys are risking a trip to the heater. And, and it's not so far-fetched. It's not so far-fetched because, again, Jesus says something similar in Matthew 18. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones, and the translation of little ones there would be people who follow me, people who believe in me, Christians. Whoever causes one of these Christians who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's Jesus talking. And then verse 11, he says, But if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So here's what the Judaizers are doing. And Paul is acknowledging this. What the Judaizers are doing, Paul's not in Galatia. He's somewhere else, okay? He's removed from the situation. That's why he's writing him a letter. So what the Judaizers are doing is they're coming to the Gentiles and they're saying, listen, in order to be truly saved, yes, Jesus is important, but you also have to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. And you need to know, we got a memo from Paul on this and he agrees with us. If Paul were here, this is exactly what he would be teaching as well. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true. I didn't send him a memo. I don't agree with it. This is not from God. By the way, you've had this experience with people before, haven't you? When they're trying to rally you to your side. If you're a parent, you've had this. You know, kid comes to you and says, you know, dad said this would be okay if you said it was okay. And then you check with your husband and, no, I don't know. Here you go. How about at work? Now, I know this has happened to you at work. There's something political going on at work, and I'm not talking about Obama and Romney. I'm talking about office politics, okay? Probably much more important, all right? There's something political going on at work, and somebody's trying to rally the troops, and so they'll come to you, and they'll say, here's our position, and you should adopt our position. And Oh, by the way, Sally, George, Henry, and, 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 and Martha all agree with us. And then you go, and you talk to Sally, George, Henry, and Martha, and they're going, I don't know. Happens all the time. That's what they're doing. And then he says, listen, if I actually preach that, if I preach that circumcision is what would help save you, then we would remove the offense of the cross. This is a really important point. The offense of the, you understand, the cross really is offensive. The cross was offensive 2,000 years ago. It's offensive now. It's offensive that you would take somebody, nail them with 12-inch spikes through their hands and their feet to a uh, wood, a cross, and then leave them up there to die, shedding their blood and everything else that comes out of them during crucifixion. It is an offensive thing. It's so offensive that many people look at that, especially today, and they say, if that's the mechanism 
that God used to save me, I don't want any part of that. That is offensive. And so now what's happened is we actually have people saying, by the way, we sang a song today, the second song. What did it say? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is the shed blood of Jesus that forgives us, saves us from our sins, and then sanctifies us, as the book of Hebrews tells us. It is offensive, but we can't walk away from this. The problem is, is that people are looking at that, and they say, that's offensive. It's violent. I don't like it. I don't like that anybody had to shed blood in order to save me from my sins. Therefore, let's teach something else, and that's actually happening today. There are denominations, there are churches that have decided to quit teaching blood atonement, blood salvation, because of popular demand. And I need you to hear me on this. Redemption Church is all about working with other churches. We are networked to the hilt. We are working with other churches. We are all about being a part of the greater body of Christ. But when it comes to false teaching, we are going to lay down the line and say we're not participating in that. And to those churches and those denominations that would say we, and literally this is what they've done. I'm not, this is not hyperbole. I'm not making this up. They have polled their congregations. They have taken surveys. We don't like uh, the cross. We don't like blood atonement. Okay, we'll quit teaching it. And so they abandon the doctrine. When that happens, we have to look at them and say, can't do that. Sorry. What scripture says, you, here you go. Do you understand? You got churches and denominations running their organizations based on surveys and polls rather than on the word of God. That's a problem, okay? And here's the deal. Yes, they have succeeded. They have removed the offense of the cross, right? They've removed the offense of the cross, but what they've also done is they have removed the mechanism by which you are saved and sanctified. This is not good. We are saved by the blood, the shedding of the blood of Jesus. It's yucky, I get it, but thank God he did that for us. That is a big deal. And then verse 12, if you think that was game on, look at verse 12. This is seriously game on. Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you, these Judaizers, I wish they would emasculate themselves. Some translations say it this way, translate it this way. I wish those Judaizers would go all the way and cut themselves off. So now you see the word play. Paul says, don't submit to cutting around. Who cut in on you? I wish they'd just cut themselves off. Okay, I'm sure Paul got some emails on this one, okay? There are some people that just couldn't resist. They start banging away the email. Well, you took it a little bit too far, Paul. And Paul's saying, no, I didn't. I wanted to make sure I got my point across, okay? But this is also a double entendre. This is the second of the double entendres. He says this because if, if these Judaizers literally emasculated themselves, they would become unclean according to the law, and they would be uh, uh, sort of, isolated from their Jewish community. They would be cut off from their Jewish community. But he also says this because he'd like these Judaizers to be cut off from the church as well. He wants them put out of the church because they are teaching falsehoods. This has become a church discipline issue for Paul, as a matter of fact. So Paul has now dealt with the falsehoods in these six verses. So he goes back to freedom in the last three verses. But this time it's not freedom from the law, but rather freedom for something. It's freedom to love and serve and discern the difference between what's good and what is not good. 
Look at these last three verses. Starting with verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting both Jesus and Leviticus 19 there. And verse 15, he says, If you bite, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Three or four issues here that we really need to go through. And that first one, the first issue is really, I want to talk a little bit about self-love. This is a very misunderstood concept, and people get it from this verse. They get it from um, uh, Matthew 22, where, where they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, Love God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. They get it from Leviticus 19. People look at that, and they literally teach. There are churches that teach us, and, they, and there are Bible study teachers that teach us. They say, listen, the only way you can learn to love other people is if you first learn to love yourself. This is a commandment in Scripture that you need to learn how to love yourself better and more, and that's the foundation for being able to love others. That's not what the Scripture is saying. What's happening here is that Paul and Jesus, when they say this, they are both assuming that you already love yourself, and you do. I already love myself, and I do. The assumption is you already know how to love yourself. You already know how to put yourself first. You already know how to look out for yourself. You already know how to take care of yourself at the expense of others. What they're saying now is use that self-love as a measuring stick for how well you love others. Oh, well, that's a different story. So now think about how much you love yourself and compare that to how well you love others. Kind of a tough standard to live up to, isn't it? John Piper says that this is the most difficult commandment in the Bible to live up to because we love ourselves way more than we could ever possibly love anybody else without the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. That's the key. It is only through faith it is only through grace, it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit in us that we can actually love others as much as we love ourselves. And that's what Paul is teaching here, and that's what Jesus is teaching. I mean, come on. Do you, seriously, think about this logically. Does Jesus really need teaching about how to love ourselves more? Does he really need that? I went digging around. I, I found a, 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 a book. It's, an, it's called an extra-biblical book. It almost made it into the Bible. It almost made the cut so to speak, but then just at the last second, they decided not to put it in. The book is called Second Opinions. I wrote it. <clears throat> Here's what it says in chapter 3 of Second Opinions. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, all the problems of the world would be solved if more people would just learn how to love themselves more if they would just learn how to obsess over themselves, if they would look out for themselves, if they would serve themselves, if people always, always, always put themselves first, then this world would have absolutely no problems at all. How's that been working for us? How about this? Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes, do nothing, do no thing, not one thing, do nothing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing that emanates from self-love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, in an attitude of servitude, in humility, consider everyone else better than yourself. Does that sound like self-love? 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else more important than yourself. Look not only to your own interests. In other words, it's okay to take care of your stuff. Look not only to your own interests, but also look to the interests of other people. You have to have a completely 360 look at everything that's going on around you. And then I would tell you, as somebody who studied this, even social science, even research into human nature by social scientists says that we've got this wrong, that we're all screwed up in this area. Social science even has a word for it. You should look this up on the internet and study it. It's called the self-serving bias. Here's how the self-serving bias works. All of us have this default mechanism. I'm the worst when it comes to this. Here's how the self-serving bias works, generally speaking, okay? If I'm successful at something, if I do something really, really well, let's say I, I take an exam in school and I get a 98 out of 100, okay? I look at that and I go, well, of course. <laughs> I mean, look at me. I'm hardworking, I'm smart, I have integrity, I'm loyal. I mean, obviously, I'm the type of person who would get a 98 out of 100. But if somebody, if then I find out one of my, or let's say my wife was taking the same class, Jackie. Okay, now, bad example. Let's say some other, ex somebody else in the class gets a 99. They got a 99. Here's what I automatically default to. And I mean, in the same breath, I'll say, well, gee whiz, could you, look at how easy the test was. I mean, anybody could have gotten an A on this. I mean, come on. I mean, there's, that was a fluke that, that that person got an A. They're not that smart. They don't work as hard as me. They, might, they just closed their eyes and started circling, and they just, like, won the lottery of exams. It was easy for them. Here's how it works when I fail at something. Let's say I, let's say I get a 42 on that exam. Well, what do I say? Well, I look at it, and I go, well, gosh, did you see the exam? It was really hard. There were a lot of questions on there that he didn't tell us to study for. And the lighting was bad, and I had a headache, and I, and it, it, you know, it, 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 nobody could have done well on this exam. But then I hear that somebody else also got a 42, and I look at him, and I go, well, obviously. I mean, look at them. You know, they're a 42 in life in general. I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> Traffic is where this really manifests itself, right? Okay, you cut somebody off, what do you do? Self-serving bias. I didn't see them. I, it, they were in my blind spot. It was an accident. Uh, they should extend me grace and understanding. I'm late for an appointment. My life is more important than theirs. They should understand. But if somebody cuts you off, are you going to extend them that grace? No, you're going to extend something else. That's what you're going to do, okay? It's true. They're a jerk that doesn't belong on this road. That's the self-serving bias. Here's what Paul is trying to teach in Galatians. He's trying to teach an other-serving bias. He's trying to say, listen, through, through the grace that has been given to you, this freedom that Christ has set you free for, you should be living in grace, living in love, living in servitude for other people. Jesus advocates for the same thing. But this can only come about as a result of the Holy Spirit living in you. You can't do this on your own power. It only comes from the power of Christ. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John. We love because... God first love us. John does not write, we love because we learned how to love ourselves first. He doesn't say that. He says we love because God first loved us. So there's some irony here. Here's the irony. Paul is essentially saying, you were called to freedom from servitude to the law. Now, in your freedom, 
you should submit to serving others. That's what he's saying. In your, now that you've been freed up from the law, you have the freedom to say yes to loving and serving others. And speaking of love, we need to understand that love is not some cold theological concept, but it is a warm reality that actually moves us into action. Love is not passive and sterile. Love is active. Love is not a noun. Love is a verb. I do a lot of marriage counseling, and I hear this all the time from, from couples, and it doesn't matter. This goes both ways, but, you know, I'll say, what's the problem? And, and the wife will say, well, he doesn't love me. And I'll say, well, buddy, what do you think? And he says, I tell her all the time that I love her. And what does she say? He may say he loves me, but he doesn't show me that he loves me. Love is not a noun. It is a verb. It is an action. It's not a feeling. It is a commitment. So here's Paul's argument about freedom for love, freedom for submitting to and serving others. He's saying, hey, Judaizers, if you're that concerned about keeping the law, understand this. Love is the fulfillment of the law. We don't need a list of regulations. You just need faith in Jesus, the grace of Christ, and the love that results. Love, by the power of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit, does what the law cannot do. In fact, love is actually a higher calling than living in submission to the law. Love is actually a higher calling than living in submission to the law. So our true freedom is to be used for others, not for self. That is true freedom according to Paul and to Jesus. And finally, Paul says this. He says, listen, you're not to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You're free in Christ now to do whatever you want. You shouldn't use it as an opportunity to indulge in sin. And again, that Greek word that we translate as opportunity to indulge, opportunity to uh, be licentious, in other words, take license with our freedom and just end up sinning and sinning. Again, it's another military term, very strong term. It literally means to set up a base of operations. So here's what Paul's saying. Don't you let your freedom be used as an opportunity to set up a base of operations for you to go and sin. Don't let your freedom be used for you to set up a base of operations for sin. Uh, there's a little postcard in the New Testament. It's called Jude. It was written by a guy named Jude who happened to be uh, one of Jesus' uh, brothers. It's a very short book, 25, I think, verses. Verses 3 and 4, this is what he talks about. He talks about this licentiousness, this idea of taking the grace and the freedom that you have and only using it to indulge in sin. He writes, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation... I find it necessary instead to appeal to you to contend for the faith. For certain people have crept in among you unnoticed, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, license, sin, self-indulgence, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, being free is not simply the opportunity to do what, you, what you've always wanted to do, no matter what the consequences. You've got to understand that the, the kind of freedom... That, that, that is like that, the, the kind of freedom that says we can just go and do whatever we want and sin and, 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 and get into destruction, that kind of freedom has done nothing but lead to people becoming produce, uh, I'm sorry, takers and consumers rather than givers and servers. If you use your freedom to indulge in sin, you become a taker and a consumer rather than a giver and a server. And again, look what Paul says in verse 15. He says, the wrong, this wrong kind of freedom leads to biting and devouring. It leads to us consuming one another. If we just live in a world where everybody does whatever they want and is oblivious to the consequences, we end up biting and devouring and consuming one another. So true freedom comes 
becomes the power to submit yourself to the right and best things. So Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, listen, in Christ now, all things are permissible. You can do whatever you want. You're free to do whatever you want. All things are permissible, but then he says, but not all things are profitable. And your freedom should give you the ability to discern between the two. Yeah, you can do whatever you want, but there are going to be some things that you're going to do that aren't going to benefit you. In fact, there are going to be things that will lead you to destruction, that will lead you to death. This freedom you have in the grace of Christ should lead you to discern between the two and know the difference. Uh, going back to Scott McKnight and his commentary on Galatians, he works at a college, a university, and so every year he says he sees these new incoming freshmen. If you have seniors in high school, maybe I shouldn't tell the story, but he sees all these incoming freshmen into the school, and he says that many of them come in feeling like they've been freed from the shackles of their parents and their house and everything, and they come in with this attitude, I am free now to do whatever I want, and in their freedom they actually end up destroying their lives. They don't have the discernment. They don't have the power of Christ living in them to be able to discern that that kind of licentious freedom is going to lead them down a path of destruction. Keller and many others, Tim Keller and many others, even argue that we inherently know that this licentious kind of freedom, while alluring in many respects, I get it, sin can be really fun. Uh, uh, Tom Schrader, the congregational pastor at Gilbert, he says this all the time. He says, if you're not having fun when you're sinning, then you're not sinning correctly, okay? So I get it. I get it. Sin can be really fun. This licentious idea can be really alluring, but we also know inherently that it's ultimately unsustainable. We can't maintain it. We know it'll actually kill us. I mean, you know the answer to this. This is a rhetorical question. Um, uh, Doing meth or doing porn, is that really an expression of freedom? No, we know that that's really evidence of bondage, of slavery. Eugene Peterson says this. This is really good. He says, Jesus has given us freedom. Just don't use that freedom to do whatever you want and thus destroy your freedom. So Paul talks about freedom from the law. And then he hits falsehoods again. And then he talks about This freedom is to be used for love and for serving others and for serving God. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, this is the Old Testament now, there's a section there where God actually talks to the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, about this idea of having bondservants, of having slaves. And and, and yes, that's in the Bible. It's a completely different understanding than the history of the United States, how we look at slavery, it was a different thing. And, because, and, and one of the reasons it was different was because God wanted to help manage it so that it was actually a pretty good thing. He had some rules and regulations, which were actually good. Nothing wrong with rules and regulations, okay? These were actually pretty good, all right? And what he said to the Hebrew slave masters is he would say, listen, you need to treat these bond servants, these slaves, like they were part of your own family. You need to treat them just as well as you would treat your sons and daughters. You need to invite them in. You need to forgive their debts. You need to help them. You need to provide for them. You need to protect them. And you have a six-year limit on this. At the end of six years, you need to give them money and stuff and send them out. In fact, you need to treat them so well that there's a very good chance that when you set them free, they're going to turn around and they're going to say, in my freedom, I choose to stay with you. 
And in fact, that's what a lot of these bond servants did. They say, okay, you're free to go. And they'd say, oh, then I'm going to stay if you'll have me. There's a story by one of Lincoln's biographers. Again, um, uh, it sounds really fantastic, all right? Could have been made up, but it's in a book, so I'm going to tell you, all right? Here you go. There's a story that Lincoln went to a slave auction once, bought a female slave. When she was brought down to him, he looked at her and he said, you're free. I'm giving you your freedom. Do whatever you want. You're free to go. And she didn't believe, she was incredulous. She didn't believe. She said, so I'm free, really? What does that mean? He said, you're free. I'm giving you your freedom. That's what I want you to do. As your master, as your owner, I want you to be free. And she says, I'm free to say whatever I want to say. And he said, yeah, say whatever you want to say. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Yes, do whatever you want to do. I'm free to go wherever I want to go. He said, yes, you're free to go wherever you want to go. She said, then I choose to go with you. Now, whether that's, that story is true or embellished or not, you get the principle. And here's the principle. We're going back to the cross now, the offensive cross. We're going back to that blood atonement. The fact that blood was shed so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin, past, present, and future sin, the sins we haven't even committed yet, has been covered by that blood of Jesus. We look at Jesus on the cross. He endured that incredible, awful crucifixion on our behalf. And he did it because he loves us so much. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us where we are. He loves us just as we are. He did that for us out of love and then extends grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness to us. And he sets us free. In our freedom, how can we not turn back to him and say, I'm yours. What can I do to serve you and your people? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the freedom for which you have set us free. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to stand firm in that freedom. I pray that you would give us the courage to say no to any other method of salvation than your son on the cross and your son raised from the dead. And God, I just pray that you would give us the freedom to discern what is right and truly good and to serve others. We ask for that power from your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, now is the point in our service that we do every week here at Redemption. Uh, we have a moment of response.